Our next event is um, a more orchestrated event appropriate for this uh, um, uh, auditorium and um, will be led by M Professor Michael Sag, who many of you know. He's a well-known musicologist right? <laughs> and a dancer uh, and also professor and division director Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, um, the University of Alabama, and really a pioneer in so many aspects of HIV care and treatment, and a um, really national and global leader in um, prevention and treatment and policy, and um, always, always uh, a welcome and important speaker at this conference. Thank you, Jerry. It's always, it's always good to be in New York. You've heard everybody say that, but it's really true. So this is where we have a little fun, um, and Kristen's going to set me up. Uh, the, the idea is that we're to set this stage right. Um, throughout the year, I think all of us get emails, right, asking what would you do with this patient or that patient. I track all of them. And the ones that I find coming up commonly, I figured, okay, those are probably important issues to talk about. And so I track those, and then about a month or two before this course, I send out emails to colleagues who I work with and say, you know, what are the top two or three questions that you're struggling with or that you'd like to know an answer to? And that makes up the questions that, and the cases that you're about to see. So hopefully this resonates with you. I'm not saying every question will. Some of them are repeats from years before, but I will tell you that in all likelihood, the answer has changed. The question's <laughs> the same. That's cool. Uh, so we're trying to make this dynamic. Our panelists are here. You've already met uh, Dr. Iran and Dr. Volberding and Dr. Friedland Tripp Gulick. I think everyone knows at Cornell, and you'll see him later, and uh, Dr. Judy Courier from UCLA. Uh, you'll hear from her as well. So we're going to bat these things around. So let's get my thing going here. Here we go. So the financial relationships are in your packet. And we're going to have a myriad of topics, just as just a few, but uh, starting therapy, not so much when to start. We don't deal with that anymore, thank goodness. Uh, what to do with somebody who's suppressed, uh, partners of seropositive patients dealing with coronary artery disease, and many more. So let's start with our first question. And I like doing it this way because you don't have to sit there and read the case and go, where are we going with this? I'm going to set the stage for you. You know, if you're playing baseball, football, Australian rules football, whatever it is. So it seems like we're now starting everyone with ARV therapy. What do you do for a genuine, bona fide, as we say in the South, sure enough, elite controller? So a 30-year-old male presents who was diagnosed four years ago with HIV. He's asymptomatic. His HIV RNA is less than 50, and go ahead and check a HIV DNA, and that was positive. His CD4 count is 870. His other labs are normal. He's HLA-B57 negative. Genotype determined from the DNA is wild type. He has no prior medical history. He's okay to start therapy if you tell him, yeah, it's a good idea. So, yes, no, maybe, let's vote. It's as easy as a Ritz cracker. No one got that, did they? Andy Griffith. Olive Scholem. <laughs> yep, there goes Andy. All right, so, all right, there's a majority of our audience who would. Who wants to support that contention on the panel? Would you treat this guy? Start. Dr. Courier? So I think reasons to consider treatment would be that this elite control of HIV comes at some expense to the, to the patient in terms of the immune response that's controlling HIV and excess inflammation. Some studies have shown um, higher rates of carotid intimamedial thickness in elite controllers. So that would be one thing to say that over the long term there might be some health benefits. And then I think the other thing is that you know, if we are ever going to have effective cure strategies, it's people who've been well suppressed for a long time who are going to be the best candidates. So those would be reasons that, that I would um, offer as considerations for treatment. That's outstanding. These uh, slides were hermetically sealed uh, uh, at Price Waterhouse, just like the Tony Awards that were just down the street. And yet, Judy knew exactly what my slide was going to be, which shows 
precisely what you said, that it comes as a cost, that yes, it's under control, but the immune system's kind of churning. It's like a duck on the water, it's running smoothly, but underneath the feet are sort of paddling fast. Yes, Drew. So the, I voted for maybe, and I think the key word in Judy's point was may. And, and so we think this is bad, but we really don't have the data to support it just yet. We presented at CROI uh, an analysis of the START study, which everybody knows was the big study showing immediate was better than deferred therapy. We looked at the subset of patients who entered START, and if you remember, everyone had CD4s over 500. A quarter of the patients had viral loads less than 3,000. And so we did a subset analysis of that group over time. It won't surprise you to learn that there were very few clinical events over the time of START, and they were actually not different between the group that started early and the group that started later. There was over 1,000 patients in that group. Over three years, though. Yeah, and that's the Shorter key point, period. only over three. And then just to say, 100 of our patients in that 1,000 patients actually had viral loads less than 50. Mm. And so when you randomize those two, again, as you would imagine, there were very few single-digit clinical events in either group. So. Maybe it's the follow-up issue. Didn't their T-cells go up more if they got treated? The less than 3,000 CD4s went up higher. When you looked at the less than 50, there was no difference. So, Mike, the, the, the only comment, if I can just be kind of completely boring and redundant, but I, I would really raise the issue again. Is he a smoker? Um, if you're worried about long-term health, if you're talking about starting ARVs because of the long-term anti-inflammatory issues, deal with the big issues first or at least at the same time. Is he a smoker? Can, can he work on that? Does he have indications for statin? Judy will tell us about later. Um, so don't forget the other context of, of the person like this. Yeah, and to your point, this slide, that it's a little hard to read maybe, but um, those folks who are non-controllers are on heart. Anyway, the immune system churning is associated in the long run with some minimal but probably significant advancing atherosclerosis. We're gonna get back to that in a little bit. But um, so all those points taken. So I think it, it's, I try to, there's not necessarily a right answer for every one of these questions. In fact, I'd say very few. There's a couple wrong answers you're going to encounter with this. We'll see how you do with those. But the, it reminds me a little bit about the Mel Brooks movie, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, when Blinken, <laughs> the guy who's blind, is keeping guard. And they say, Blinken, what are you doing up there? And he goes, I'm guessing. So that's what we're kind of doing a lot of the time. So what regimen should I use as initial therapy? A 48-year-old guy comes in, asymptomatic, modest viral load, 28,000, CD4 count above 500, B57 negative, wild-type virus, no past medical history, not a smoker. He's just kind of a normal guy, not, no therapy, if any kind, he's healthy. He wants to start therapy if you think he should, and of course you do. So you, what regimen would you choose? And there's 10 options. So if you don't like any of these, hit zero, okay? <laughs> And I'll give you a chance to kind of look these over rather than read them. Find your favorite, 28,000 viral loads, 650 CD4. Let's go ahead and vote and see what the music is. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was... I, 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 I don't know how this happened. Goofy songs from television, that's me. Okay. Aspect we're going to see a lot of variety here, and you got to hit, hit it one more time. Yeah, I did, but I, let's. It's I don't oh, want to. Sorry, miss we it. just didn't get it. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Yeah. Should I try it, it again? It's on one, but not the other. That means it's coming. It may be overwhelmed. One more, one more time. I promise. Ah. <laughs> Boom. Okay. So. A folk, couple folks went with the option two, which is a fixed dose combination dolutegravir with the bacavir. And a lot of other folks went with a TAF, FTC, a 3TC, a dolutegravir equivalent. Uh, so a lot of people, over half the folks or so, like dolutegravir at the time. And uh, interestingly, I threw in their option nine, of which 2% went for, low viral load, dolutegravir, 3TC. So let's, let's divide the commentary into the sort of mundane routine comments. We'll keep those short, and then we'll get controversial. So, Anybody want to be Well, so day? first of all, number five is kind of interesting, but I don't think there is a fixed-dose combination of TAF. No, sorry, that, that was a typo. So it's a fixed-dose combination of, of TAF, F3TC 
with dolutegravir, and you'll see in a second that there's actually available in Sub-Saharan Africa. So if you were, <laughs> you could import. Of course. This is a giant import city, right? So there you go. So comments. Um. Yeah, I'll just say quickly that I would choose five. Um, uh, it is two pills, but I think it's probably the uh, most active, safest um, therapy that, that we, we have. Um, okay. Uh, Anybody like the other integrase inhibitors or like once daily raltegravir is around the corner soon? Yeah, not available yet. Right, but let's six months or so or less. And ropivirine should be fine in this situation. Ropivirine could be a really good choice, right? I would say one thing is I probably wouldn't use efavirenz. Um, as we learn more about the long-term safety, increased risk of suicide, depression, I think we really do have other superior options, and that's why it's no longer a preferred initial choice. So I think some people have been nervous about using integrase inhibitors up front, worried they might burn through them, or and I think we really are at a point where they really should be the first-line therapy. Just, just to say about real pivoring, that one of the issues that comes up is the need to take it with food, and that can be a problem for some people, and also PPIs you have to avoid with it. So it can be problematic. So this guy was asymptomatic, not on anything, and swore he'd and eat. He eats. He would <laughs> eat. He would eat at least once a day, I think. And, and, there, and there is a, an issue that uh, with the integrase inhibitors, uh, uh, certainly L-bitegravir, but also I think dolutegravir um, of uh, antacids, and um, that we tend to neglect, and uh, not just. Pre prescribed, but also over-the-counter that interfere with absorption. Mm. And we tend to, I think I have, and I know my colleagues have, not thought about that when they prescribe this because it's so easy to prescribe and seems to be the preferred yeah. regimen. But there are some hazards, and you have to be very careful about that and make sure you inquire yeah. about that. Yeah, calcium and magnesium supplements yes. that people sometimes get from the gym, uh, they can't be taken at the same time, yeah. reduce absorption. So that said, we don't see that much <clears throat> failure, though, yeah. despite all this. And you're, you're exactly right. So let's jump to a little bit more avant-garde. Uh, we heard earlier, nobody raised their hand, uh, about dilutegravir monotherapy. And a lot of that came from uh, data that Mark Weinberg in Canada, Montreal, had said, we just don't see resistance. We can make it happen in the test tube. There's a lot of difficulty. We haven't seen it yet. Well, Croy, there it was. So there's a monotherapy study that had it. So yeah, your guess was good, and it just didn't, it's not there. But if you kind of give it a little boost with 3TC only, Dr. Gulick. It, it's premature to routinely use that two-drug regimen of dolutegravir 3TC. Remember, the excitement about this was generated from a pilot study of only 20 people in Argentina. We saw 24-week results and then 48-week results. Most people did fine. There were uh, two failures. Um, on that, one was uh, a suicide, so, so not a traditional failure, um, and the other person did experience failure, but there was non-adherence there. Then we heard Joe presented uh, that randomized French. Not randomized, uh, uh, single not, arm, yeah. but, but those were suppressed patients. So those were suppressed going to switch. There's two big phase three studies that are directly comparing the approach so I really think it's premature for anyone to be. Yeah. So, but there are it. there are studies going on. So it's a little not ready for prime time. But it is. I just bring it up because it's an emerging concept that I agree is not ready for prime time. Let's make the case a little bit more challenging. Can we just say if it Sorry. works, that's going to be unbelievable, right? That'll probably be the go-to first line. Because you can because 3TC would just be a little bit creative. Fix those combination with a brand name dolutegravir with a little bit of a generic 3TC and booyaka shot. And they can co-formulate, so yeah. it would be one pill even in the United States. These would only be for naive patients. Naive, yeah, right. Yeah, and, and you know, then uh, suppressed maybe too, but, but well, that, the, the study is in naive patients. Everyone's memorized how we answered the first one, right? Okay, good. Now let's ask the same question, same guy, except his viral load is 760,000 and the CD4 counts 21, and he's got fatigue and weight loss, but otherwise everything else is the same. Same issues, however, I took out a couple of options. I took out the dolutegravir 3TC, because nobody's gonna go for that. And uh, let's go ahead and vote.
Letterman's not even here. We're not in Cleveland anymore. Brought to you by the Travel to Cleveland now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see what LeBron James says. Here we go. So it looks like one, two, three, four, five. The winner is the regimen that uh, Joe, I think you mentioned, uh, which is the fixed dose TAF uh, 3TC or FTC with dolutegravir. And, uh, but a lot of folks still with the Bacavir 3TC, Dolutegravir, there's data for that. And then other, uh, the Elvitegravir, so mostly integrase inhibitors. There is a little bit more folks, uh, are a little bit more folks going for the Darunavir. And so let's talk about that. I think, Judy, you mentioned that there's some hesitancy for integrase up front, if I remember who said that. Right. But. Uh, okay. No, I was just saying that, there, that some people are still not comfortable using integrase inhibitors first line. Um, but I, I mean, I would still use the same regimen here. Best, right. Assuming. But would, are we comfortable saying, because we, we're so used to protease inhibitors, we're comfortable with those. And we know Darunavir, as an example, is really pretty potent for people with advanced disease. By the way, so is a tripla, or sorry, the, uh, 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 yeah, Sustine, Favrin, thank you, Scott, TDF. Too much time, too much time. All right, so the efavirenz the will work too, but what about integrase inhibitors? Are you feeling okay with that? I, I, go ahead, Paul. I was gonna say, I think that, you know, while we wait for a, a for a, integrase inhibitor that doesn't require boosting to be combined with TAF and FTC, I think that, you know, the, the L-Vitegravir uh, single pill mm -hmm. once a day is a pretty good option. Yeah. The thing I would say is that the, the way naive studies enroll these days, and in the last, you know, six, seven years, very few patients that look like this got into any of those naive studies. So, um, I think at Croy, but uh, there, um, one of the manufacturers has enough data with Elvitegravir, Kobe, because uh, they've looked at so many patients. Right. They've looked at less than 200, and they, they see an, a, you know, a good effect, um, so to, to Paul's point. Um, but to be honest, we don't have published data on Darunavir, Ritonavir, or Darunavir, Kobe in that same group. Um, right. It really is a Favrin-based therapy, or so. Um, but I, I, would, I would keep my choice the same. I would still go with, with fine. Yeah. There are, there's at least one wrong answer here, so number four, real pivoting. I kept that in there for a reason, thank right. you. So, and very no, no, that's why, that's yeah. why I wanted to make the point. Yeah, so anything over 100,000, but that's to give the reverse, that among the studies that, and there's almost all of them, that did sort of stratify by a viral load of 100,000 or less, um, the upper group did just as well was the lower group for all the integrase inhibitor studies, although, as Joe said, sometimes those patients don't make it. But there's it's no signal. It's a low signal. CD4 count patient in particular. Right. There's no signal that that's a problem. There, was a, there is a question here that relates to this. It came from the audience, so keep writing questions as we go, and I'll incorporate them as best I can. And this is the issue of use of dolutegravir and iris in someone like this. So he has no fever. He has no symptoms. But is it more likely with a integrase inhibitor than, say, something else, to get iris. There was something. I think at Croy there was a, um, uh, I, I didn't review it, so I, I don't want to quote it exactly, but it, it was that there was a increased incidence of iris with um, integrase inhibitors. Yeah. I, I think I. They just that, work well, you know. <laughs> that, that would not deter me yeah. at all, personally. Yeah. But, but, but you can imagine, we know that the virus itself is, a uh, immune suppressant. That's right. Right. So, because you can see, um, uh, you can certainly see iris well before the CD4 changes. That's exactly so, right. So, perhaps removing the virus from the circulation more quickly. I, I think that's what it is. In other words, if you look at the the rate of decline of virus on almost any integrase inhibitor versus either a non-nuke or a boosted protease, it's much faster and much more significant in the first 12 weeks. So therefore, I think, I don't think it matters. You just expect that. I don't think it's a reason not to use it. But the virus, as Joe said, I'd just phrase it differently. I'll just say it's evil. The virus <laughs> is evil. <laughs> and it affects, it affects the immune system in a very evil way. And so you get rid of the evil, and the immune system wakes up and goes, 
WTF, and it starts to attack, and then you get the iris. So that's you should hang around with this guy more yeah. often. It's just. I, I think it's awful. important to say that the the CD4 count is not a measure of immune function. That's right. It's a number, and yeah. the immune response actually starts much faster than yeah. the CD4 count changes. So you are actually seeing something quickly. But um, iris is not without its problems, and I don't think we should just blow it off. That particular study was done, I think, with tuberculosis, and uh, it could be very severe. There are occasionally fatalities. Um, I think it should be a more measured decision, frankly, if the CD4 count is below 50 and someone has a very severe opportunistic infection. Because so, so we do have effective You would have less drugs. with combivir, too. If you started that, you don't have much less iris. <laughs> um, so, so I just, no, but I we just, do have effective therapy. Effective? Other, we do have effective <laughs> therapy other than, uh, maybe you know, we've been using effect. effective therapy for years right. now. Yeah. It's not so just the newest yeah, one. one. quick comment so this, and I have one quick question. This is something we argue about in our clinic all the time. If you don't have a genotype and you need to start somebody right away, you know, yeah. that's immediately, right. would that make you favor the protease inhibitor over dolutegravir? And I think it might make me favor it. Mm. The, the guidelines are uh, equal on that okay. very point quick because of the low quick. rate of integrase resistance right, right. in the community. So quick. by equal, you mean there's no decision? It's equal. It says you can do either one. Okay. Right. Quick, quick question from the audience about, is there any difference assuming 3TC versus FTC in this setting? Probably not. Just whichever ever is bundled more. Right. It's a question of, of what's available. And, uh, you know, there are data from Bob Schaefer and others that suggest that, that FTC use is associated with less resistance emergence, and at least in the African setting, where you can make direct comparisons. Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I would normally say what what everybody just said, but but it, it, there are, there are some data out there that that suggest big meta analysis. Right. Yeah. Really you know, a lot, yeah. No, in terms of comparative, th right? No. Absolutely. Right. In, in terms of outcome, short-term outcome. Right. Can we just say there is a. Yeah, I know. I, I'm, I got stuck here. Sag, cut it out. I know. Here we go. That's what I needed. Thank you. There is a myth in our field that protease inhibitors are better when the viral load is extremely high. Yep. That was the point of the question. Yeah. So thank you. That was, there, it's good, but it doesn't mean it's the only good. That I think, in my opinion, I think others, based on data, that the integrase inhibitors work just as well, as does ephavirins, actually, we just don't use as much. The guidelines are here. I think you can look them up in the interest of time. Um, these are the regimens that obviously we'll use most, and those are the ones that you were picking. So good. This is an interesting slide. I got this from Andrew Hill in uh, Great Britain in London. And these are the costs to Sub-Saharan Africa. Look at the bottom. TAF, 3TC, Dolutegravir, fixed-dose combination for one year, $60. This is estimated, by the way. It's not yet available. Correct. But, but let's double it. $120. <laughs> you know, the price is right. And, uh, and so I just think you, I'll just, that speaks for itself. I'll just move on. Can I just add? Yeah. I was really surprised to hear at Croy that dolutegravir is now the treatment of choice in South Africa, Botswana, Brazil, Brazil, and India. And, those four countries. Yeah, and so based on pricing, but also, I mean, why should it be any different than here, right? If we're using it here, that's great. So this actually was a question that came from the audience that it shows you how common questions are common. Um, what regimen would you use when a patient shows up, now you've done a resistance test, and there's an M184V, M184V as pre-therapy. So here's a woman who shows up, newly diagnosed. She's got that viral load in CD4 count of the first guy. Uh, B57 negative, genotype M184V, no past medical history, doesn't have children, doesn't plan to become pregnant. Okay to start therapy if you think she should. Now, with an M184V, does that change how you vote, which you're going to do right now? Hopefully. After a beer. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. That bar was in Boston, though, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
go. Here we are. So it looks like more people moved to a boosted. Well, what no, they still do? Number five. Two, three, four, five. So so they stayed number with five. yeah stayed with Dalyutegravir based and a little bit more maybe yeah so. The wrong, What's answer, interesting, the wrong answer is nine now, right? Yeah, yeah nine <laughs> is a bad answer at this point. Although not, yeah, it's, yes. it, you would be screened out of the study that's going on if you had M184B. I, I, I think so two check. is a pretty wrong answer also. Yeah, so let's talk about opinion. that, Joe. Go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, someone else can talk. I, it, the, the issue is that 184V and how it impacts um, nucleosides. And, and while it causes high-level resistance to 3DC and FTC, everybody knows that, it does change susceptibility to a back of here. It, it, in, it decreases susceptibility, not above a threshold of resistance, but enough that would make me anxious to have 3DC fully compromised, a back of partially compromised, and then only having dolutegravir. And continue the, oh, go ahead, Trip. And so the other thing that uh, this mutation does, as, as we've grown to learn, is enhance the virologic activity of either form of tenofovir and AZT, although we don't use that drug anymore. Right. But having said all that, and I, I would have had a discussion with her about how many pills and side effects and all this, because the recommendation we're about to make is not based on a lot of data. We're crossing our fingers here when we pick number five, TAF, 3TC, and dolutegravir. We're hoping that what we just said sure. is true. Right. No, but I think there's another point, point to, to, to add, and that is, that even with, and Joe, I think your group showed this like 20 years ago, that you lose on the uh, phenotype a huge amount, like 100-fold plus, but there's still about a 0.5 to 0.6 log reduction. In the face of an M184V, if all you use was 3TC alone, you'd still get a drop, as opposed to, say, a K103N with a Favrins, you won't see much impact at all. It's sort of all gone. So a little bit of activity still remains, and I would argue that in the case, your, your point's well taken, Trip. but just clinically, um, and we should, probably should do a database search to, to publish this, but, but folks who are on the sort of a tenofovir-based regimen with 3TC or FTC, it tends to balance out okay. So just to say, the more data-driven choice would be number six, the boosted PI. We yeah. do have people failing two nukes and efavirenz that go on to just this regimen and do fine. Yeah. Dolutegravir probably works, but we don't have the data we need. That you might do, um, based on her history, is, you know, wondering how long she's been infected and whether she might have actually been on treatment before and just maybe That's chose amazing. not to disclose that would be to repeat a resistance test maybe two weeks into treatment and see if anything so, else comes popping that's up. That's really smart. Good idea. Yeah, because the, so the transmitted 184V is un, un, quite uncommon, actually. So that, that would, right, right, that would probably has to do with the fitness issue. That would you do a DNA on this? You, you could do a DNA beforehand. That would be another approach to, to doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think Judy's suggestion also is equally good. So there's a question from the audience that I'll paraphrase in honor of Gilda Ratner, whose way is just around the corner here, Gilda Ratner way. Um, it would be something along the lines of, um, what's, what's all this fuss I hear about a rapid drop in viral load? Why is that important? Emily Lutella. So tell me why, tell me why. How many of you know who Emily Lutella is? Raise your hand. Everyone over 40. Yeah. <laughs> so that's for the gray hairs in the audience. Um, so anybody, Judy, do you, does that mean something to you for a quick, quick drop in viral load if it's going to give you iris? Does that matter in any kind of way clinically? Well, I think it, um, one thing it does is when the patient comes back for follow-up and they see that their viral load has gone down huh. within four weeks, it really gives a lot of confidence that this treatment is going to work. So there's kind of a you know, psychological impact of having a rapid decline in viral load. And then depending on the situation, you know, whether they're in a discordant relationship or what reduces their risk of transmission. So there's some, I think, benefit to getting viral load down yeah. quicker. As far as biology for the patient, I don't, it would be really hard to show. Uh, but I think, you know, why not get rid of the evil when it's there? Um, okay, this is a common question. How many, I mean, almost everybody's dealt with this, right? You have a person who's on a Favrin's 3TC and tenofovir. Uh, in a fixed dose combination that is of the brand name that I slipped out six times already that I'm not supposed to, and a patient who has been on it for the last 10 years. Here we go. 
A 40-year-old woman referred to you for evaluation, diagnosed 10 years ago with an initial HIV RNA of 36,000, a CD4 count of 150. She's been on a regimen of Favrin's FTC and Tenofovir and has been persistently undetectable. Now the CD4 counts 525. It's her only regimen. She doesn't report any symptoms at all, and she feels pretty good. She doesn't ask you, but you look at the regimen and go, huh, I've been reading some stuff here. So what do you do? You can turn your, continue her current antiretroviral therapy like George Herbert Walker Bush, not going to debt, change wouldn't be prudent. Change your ARV to two nukes and ropivirine, change it to two nukes and boosted PI, to two nukes and an integrase inhibitor or something else. Let's vote. <laughs> Joe, we're getting all the neck of the woods here. <laughs> I'm going to change my name to Eb. Keep trying. I don't think How are we I... doing, Mike? Oh, there. Yes. Okay. So 40% would say George Herbert Walker Bush, and 39% would change to uh, uh, an integrase inhibitor. What would you guys do? I, I, I like that integrase inhibitor. You I, think, Paul, what were you saying? Yeah, you no, keep... I, I'd, I'd go with number four. You'd change. I'd change. Okay. We've had, you know, we've had the experience before of indinavir, remember that drug? And, you know, patients were tolerating it fine, but they sure felt better when they switched. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I'd really be more proactive at this point with a drug that we know isn't as good as the others. I, I chose something else just because you have to have a conversation with her. Yeah. Okay. And she's been on this drug for so long. You know, our patients think when they've been on a drug for 10 years and it's done so well for them that there's sort of a magic associated and she has no symptoms. So you really want to get into why you would even consider well, changing. You want to talk about renal and tenofovir, and you want to talk about the CNS and efavirenz, and just say these are options. I, I had a guy who absolutely did not want to change from AZT3TC efavirenz, no matter how many times I, well, so this went on for at least several years, and finally he decided to switch. So I think a conversation, you can't be dogmatic here. She's been on it for 10 years. So I've had, the same, to be I've had the same experience in people who have refused to change and, um, and it becomes a process. So every third visit, I bring <laughs> yeah. it up. <laughs> and um, I know you're gonna talk about See, it and you know, I don't wanna change. Flu so, shot, anal pap, switch your efavirenz. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I, to me, this was a more of a conversation you know, two years ago, now it's more of, uh, here's my advice, uh, uh -huh. uh, because of the TDF-TAF issue, uh, really. I mean, if, if there was a, you know, TAF, FTC, efavirenz, um, I, I, you know, I, I just think it gets to, you know, I don't, when I go to a mechanic, I don't want him to say, well, what do you think needs fixing on your car? I want him to tell me what needs fixing. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to do it. But, but if your um, car's running well. If your car's been running well. Right. Well, yeah. You're, you're going to put in. Well, put in this well if, my, if my car's running well, but there's, right. you know, a crack in the so, manifold so or something that I can't see. I think, I think it's appropriate that it's equal. Yeah. I, two two other point. points, though. I do think sometimes People get used to how they feel yeah. and what the normal is. And I've certainly had the experience of people switching off of Favrons and coming back and just saying, oh my God, I feel so much better. So I think you have to probe that. And then the other thing to, that I also um, run into is that for some insurance companies, suddenly a drug that's on their preferred, non-preferred list is going to cost the patient more. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that's not going to be a problem before switching. Okay. But I would recommend and There is that. good evidence for choice two, even though many people didn't pick it. Um, there actually is randomized data for choice two. Ropivirine. Ropivirine. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and a suppressed okay. patient. Okay, then you could you could switch it to the TAF at the same time. Right, then you yeah, fix right. those. Right, yeah. good point. All right, this one we may want to phone a friend in the form of Dr. Buckbinder. <laughs> um, I'm mixing all my metaphors and game shows here. Should I give prep to a seronegative partner of a successfully treated patient? I think I might have thrown this in about two years ago when I was here. But this is one where the question's the same and the answer may be changing. A 45-year-old guy makes an appointment to your prep clinic and his partner is positive but is not with him on this visit. 
And, uh, and the partner's been successfully treated for a long time, consistent less than 50, feels well, the patient, the partner coming in, um, just doing great. But he, and you ask, are you having any partners outside of your relationship? And he adamantly denies that. So at this point, what would you do? And I know the answer from Trips going to be you have a conversation. Okay, but, 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 but let's say you've had the conversation, sort of, and that's the extent of it, what I just gave you. Um, what's your inclination, let's put it that way, prior to your conversation? Prescribe, not prescribe, or really not sure what to do? Let's vote. Susan Buckbinder, come on down. I didn't plan this, actually, but it sort of works uh, a little bit. It's family feud, I know. You're the contestant. All right, so let's see what we got here. It wants to, it really, in the worst way, wants to do this. There we go. All right. And your, your lifeline is down there, man. All right, so Dr. <laughs> Buckbinder, how would you answer this? The audience was leaning pretty heavily, two-thirds for prep. I think that there is, we cannot underestimate the benefit of prep to people's peace of mind and that it really makes a difference in their sexual practices to be feeling really confident. So I, w I think it's an ongoing relationship potentially to have with this patient. I would talk about the, I mean, this is, this is a pretty um, clear case of somebody being very consistently suppressed for a very long time and they're your patient. So I think that in that way, you're in a better situation to reassure them. Mm -hmm. If they were still insistent, I think the other thing is, so I think people don't always tell you about their practices outside. Uh -huh. yeah. So I think that you have to take this as a potential for, um, that, they're, that you're their partner's provider and they don't, they don't have the relationship with you that the, that the patient does. So there might be concern about divulging that. But I also think that if the person were really insistent and they understand what the potential risks are, that there is a, I mean, I hear from patients all the time and patients in serodiscordant couples that it's really dramatically changed their quality of life, that they, it's not constantly eating away at them. And for the positive partner to not worry that they're going to be transmitting to their partner is huge. So I, I, would, pro, I would tend towards potentially prescribing PrEP, but continuing to probe that over time and see if, if that's really necessary. But that's, you know, there is no right answer I'd be interested in hearing okay. what the panel says. Anybody want to say something different? Well, I think that the fact that the patient raised the question suggests that they really want it yeah. and that they, again, might very well have a reason to want it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, do you ahead, think Judy. some of the, the, I mean, do you think that part of the problem is as healthcare providers, we haven't been as clear with our messaging about the fact that if you're undetectable, you're not going to transmit yeah. HIV. And that yeah. feeds into this anxiety that wants, makes people want to have PrEP when they probably don't need it. Yeah. So these, this whole format's a little, you know, forced. And of course, you're going to have the conversation. and You're going to give them the data that their chance is really zero if, if everything remained the same. And that was their only partner. But if they're, they're there asking, and so we're obliged to, to do something. And this is one where I think the answer has changed pretty dramatically in the last two years where I showed this two years ago. Most people said, no, don't get prep. There's no reason. And then, you know, everything you just heard. Okay, so here's, here's a question we get, uh, we think about a lot, is can I use TAF, now not TDF, this is TAF, in patients with impaired renal function? So there's a 46-year-old guy who presented four years ago with a viral load of 128,000 in CD4 count of 280, got started on um, boosted darunavir, TDF, and FTC, and has done well virologically. Um, he's a smoker. Uh, he's got some diabetes uh, in the past that seems to be controlled with diet now, and a family history for coronary artery disease. He's 46. But now his serum creatinine has increased to 2.3 milligrams per deciliter, and the estimated creatinine clearance by Cockroft Galt is 35 cc's a minute. So you're going to need to do something different, I guess. And he is not, he is not um, uh, surface antigen positive, and he's B5701 negative. A lot to take in, but I think you're with me. 
So, what you going to do? Uh, got options for TAF, for Abacavir, continuing TDF every other day. Uh, remember, he's on boosted Darunavir. Let's go ahead and vote. Sounds like somebody just ate corned beef and cabbage to me. I don't know. So let's see. Got to be patient. I remember. Really patient. Patience is a virtue. Oh, oh, it'll be there. It'll be there. It'll be there. It'll be there. Yes. Yes. Boom. Okay. We're kind of split. Uh, so answers two, answer five, and answer six were the most common. Let's talk about those. So who would go with an Abacavir-based regimen here? Moans and it. groans, huh? No, I thought about it. Okay, good. You thought? <laughs> yeah, thought? I, Jerry thought I, I, about I, it. I would consider. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right. Please. Okay. So Abacavir possibly. I admit Trip. it. The concerns here, he's a smoker, he's diabetic. Um, he's a man. He's, he's a man. He's a man. <laughs> so well, one of those things you can change pretty easily. Yeah, right. Yeah. The data aren't quite clear. Half the studies showed one thing, half the, the other. But why would we take a risk in someone with a bunch of cardiac risk factors? I wouldn't do it. Plus, technically, you have to dose adjust the 3TC, so you end up with a complicated regimen. I don't typically do that, but uh, until the creatinine yeah. clearance gets down around 30, but you, this is pretty close to 30. It's no, subtle, but you notice I didn't say fixed dose combination here because you really can't do that. You have to adjust around. We also know, now know that there is a signal, a cardiovascular signal with Darunavir, too, so I think there's a reason probably. It's a rock and a hard place a little bit. So what about TAF specifically? Trip? Yeah, I would, I would make the switch. We don't know that it will help, and he has other reasons to have renal disease here, but why keep it going in the face yes. of a rising creatinine? We may have to do something else after this, and obviously he needs a workup of his renal disease here, but yeah. I would get rid of the toxin that we know and switch him to, uh, to TAF. Hot off the press, a question just came in. Do, the, does the panel as, as a group, do we always prefer TAF over TDF? Yes. Yes. Pe yeah, pretty much. I can't think of a reason. Except for prep. Except for, for yeah. prep. Well, one choice that isn't on here that potentially you could put on here, I don't remember his treatment history, but, but the SOAR data I just showed you, um, dolutegravir pivarine, um, very convincing data. Um, and and the, the, while they didn't do it in people with renal failure or, or yeah. creatinine clearance of, of thir it, 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 this would be because some people argue, well, why? Who cares now about uh, dolutegravir pivarine now that we have TAF? Uh, but this, I think, would be a, a, a situation, especially if his creatinine clearance was 20 as opposed to that. 35. Because um, uh, it, it's 30 is the cutoff for TAF. So that's a really good point because I went a different direction that. Uh, I'd like to ask you all about, and that's option seven, right? So background, uh, remember back in the day when raltegravir came out, everyone said, okay, great, we're going to use raltegravir with boosted darunavir. Study was done, and oops, it didn't work so well for reasons that aren't 100% clear, but probably due to some drug interactions or level issues, right? So what about, what about with dolutegravir, though? I'm, there are not any data that I'm aware of. Study going on. Study going I don't on. Think we've seen any data yet. Okay, but I'll tell you what. This is a common question, mm -hmm. and I have a lot of providers who I know, and I don't. I tend not to because I want to. I was burned personally, not literally, but you know, thinking about the raltegravir story. I'd like to see the data, but there are a lot of people using this regimen, um, and anecdotally, with some degree of success. I'm not hearing people call me about failures, but that's that doesn't mean a whole lot. If we do use dolutegravir, everyone should remember its effect on the renal transporter because the creatinine will go up 0.1 so, or 0.2. Beautiful. Gosh, you guys are great. So item four and anything with dolutegravir all through different mechanisms. So for, for, um, 
for TAF, sorry, for COBE, if you're going to choose that, it's going to be through MATE 1. What the hell is that? All right, that in the proximal tubule, I think I actually have this here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, wait. Oops, sorry, I didn't, I didn't put the diagram in. But the point is, is that COBE interfe interferes with MATE 1, which is a transporter. And we used to think life was simple with drug interactions, right? There were CYP enzymes and there were glucuronidation, and I felt pretty comfortable. Then we start learning that the reason those don't predict all the time very well is because of these other transporter enzymes. And these particular two are in the proximal tubule of the kidney. So MATE1 is inhibited by COBE. And MATE-1's responsible for some secretion, not filtering, secretion of creatinine from the bloodstream into the urine at a low amount, but a significant amount, enough to where you're going to see about a 0.1 to 0.15 milligram percent elevation in creatinine, right? And for dolutegravir, same story, but different enzyme. It's OCT2, but the same exact concept, and you get about the same effect. So... It's okay in a way because you know it's really not affecting true GFR, but as a clinician, this guy's got a creatinine of 2.3. Let's say it goes up to 2.5, and you do your cockcroft gault, and now the estimated creatinine clearance is 22 or something, and, and you're sort of stuck because you made this change and you don't know what it is. You'd have to do an iohexol clearance, which I haven't done since a dog lab in medical school. Um, I, I don't... What, would, what do you do? I, I literally saw a patient yesterday who, um, for resistance reasons, is on both dolutegravir and um, cobicistat. And his primary provider, um, and his creatinine went from 1.1 to 1.4, 1.5. And his primary provider adjusted his other medications. Uh, huh. Dose reduced because of uh, concerns about renal function. He's yeah. antihypertensive. So uh, it, it's, a it's a real, it's, it's, we, we get it, we understand it, but it can make clinically a little more difficult. So this is a question for which I put this in here because it comes up, right? There aren't great answers. So that, that I think, is kind of the take-home point. It's just you pick which direction you want to go. And as long as you're thinking about it the right way, I think that's the take-home message. And I, I think we've covered the issues that I, I wanted to on these uh, cases. So the point of this slide, sorry, is that is that you see a <laughs> you see a drop in you see a drop in the estimated Cockcroft Galt, whether you're using TDF or TAF, and even TAF has even TDF has some additional impact on secretion, and so going from TDF to TAF, uh, you actually have an improvement, relatively speaking, in estimated GFR acutely. And just to remind you, the TAF is labeled to go down to a GFR of 30. 30. So this was, ironically, in the, you know, miraculously, 35. Yeah. So I don't know how that happened. I have um, a patient, similarly, who has a creatinine clearance less than 30, but also has hepatitis B. And I actually was trying to get some information from the manufacturer of TAF, whether I should go with every day, maybe I should go with every other day yeah. uh, in that range. So it was... Um, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, by the way. I put the patient on every other day uh, to, uh, yeah. uh, TAF FTC, in part because the FTC uh, is, is influenced. But I, I didn't honestly know what to do. I've got a number so, of really good questions, but I do want to get to this, what will probably be the last case, because I think this is an important one. Can I say that just yeah. in this case, this maybe is a decision that you make and you just follow very, very Absolutely. carefully. And, and you, you may get, have to alter it. And right. And you get your nephrologist involved, potentially. Yep. Okay. So here's, here's one I want to uh, really get to. This one came from a provider who I'm friends with in, uh, in Arizona. Uh, and, and it was an email exchange. So this is a guy who started on ARV years ago and had wild-type virus. And he had gone away from care for this guy and then returns four years later. As he returns, he had been through several regimens. You can see them listed here, Bacavir. He's now on a Bacavir 3TC Dolutegravir fixed dose. And his viral load's been persistently less than 20, and his C4 count's great. His cholesterol's up a little bit. His creatinine's up a little bit. He's a smoker and a diabetic, but four months ago, he had a heart attack. And he's on medical therapy appropriately. This is aspirin, statin, beta blocker, yada, yada. And you're looking at him 
and this, he, this viral load profile, CD4 profile, abacavir 3TC, dolutegravir, and you ask them to quit smoking, yay? yay? <laughs> what else are you going to do? Continue the current regimen, switch them to TAF FTC, switch them off of dolutegravir, some other continent, darunavir? Hmm. Okay, what are you going to do? blank on that one. That's unusual. I have to look it up. Okay. While we're, it, it's um, still struggling. Getting it. Thinking about it. Really thinking about it. Ah, there you go. No. Yeah. Yes. Yay. Okay. Boom. 81% changed. 8% not going to do it. So, Judy. I, yeah, I think um, LDL is 172. He's had an MI. He's really high risk for having recurrent events. And this I think that was pre-statin. So, oh, okay. sorry. Okay. Yeah. So let's say his LDL is. He's now on a statin. Let's say he's at he's at target. All right. But anyway, he. I mean, I, I do think that smoking cessation is probably the most effective thing he can do to reduce his long-term risk. But I think switching the abacavir to TAF um, would be what I would also be something I would offer. Okay, let me throw out some, some data. Um, we've all scratched our heads about this Abacavir story. There, wa there was a paper uh, about three years ago that attempted to look at mechanism, and there was a, there's a signal that Abacavir has some impact on platelet aggregation, and that that might be the mechanism, or contribute to the mechanism of why you might see a little bit of elevation. Now remember, you also see a little bit of elevation nowadays with other drugs, like we're talking about Darunavir and other things. So, but it could be that it's, that it's Abacavir. I'll also add a cautionary note that way back when, in talking with Simon Malal, we were thinking about the positioning of the B5701 on, I think it's chromosome 6, near a heat shock protein, and that that heat shock protein was responsible for the hypersensitivity reaction, but that could also be playing into, I mean, there's all kinds of fanciful ideas, but the question here, yeah, but the question here is, let's say it is platelet aggregation as a mechanism. Hypothetically, would aspirin overcome that? So... I mean, there was a study looking at aspirin in people with HIV led by Megan O'Brien from New York here. And one of the things that it showed is that it looked like patients with HIV had a little bit of aspirin resistance, that the expected effects of aspirin were blunted in people with HIV. So yeah. I certainly would use aspirin, but I would be, you know, I don't well, think it's going to... He should be on it anyway. Yeah, he's, he's yeah he is on it. Yeah. He's on it. So that, but if he's on it, does that affect your decision about taking him off of Bacavir? But we don't really know the mechanism. Okay. So. All right. So I think there's a. I think the audience is uh, sort of headed in the right direction here. So let's talk a little bit, though. I'm going to finish. I have four minutes left, and I want to uh, share some um, uh, mea culpa personal uh, journey with cohort studies, because I've been. You've heard me probably over the years push that there's a lot of valuable data in our clinical experiences, and if we collect data accurately. They really help inform us. A lot of what you heard today with the DAD study and with other things in a group that I'm and Joe were involved in called Scenix and it's in, in Paul's group. So it's really helpful, but it's, there's an extra layer of responsibility on investigators working with cohorts to make sure that those data are accurate. Now, how many people during your training or ever in your life did you spend more than three months in a laboratory pipetting? Well, most of you, right? And so anyone who's done that knows if you have a 20-step procedure and you screw up one step, what do you get? Bupkis. Nothing happens. The experiment doesn't work. That is a blessing. <laughs> it even feels bad, but it's a blessing because you don't get an answer. You've got to fix it, right? In cohort data, you always get an answer. That's a curse because you've got to analyze to see is this First off, have face validity and are other things involved. So with that as background, Heidi Crane at the University of Washington has been leading a series of studies where they took, where the Scenics group took data from reported heart attacks and then adjudicated them in great detail with three cardiologists. Out of 1,119 reported MIs, 
when they adjudicated, only 26% were sure enough MIs. This is out of an electronic health record, reported MI. Now, you say, how did that be? Well, it could be that we as clinicians were putting in rule out, right? But whatever it is, it got reported. So when we look at data from any cohort and they're reporting MIs, there should be a little bit of a filter that says, huh, I wonder if that's a real MI. So she went on to do something even cooler. And as you may, those of us who weren't in training until uh, for, from a long time ago don't know this, but the fellows and others do, that there are, cardiology world has two types of MIs. The first one is the type that we normally think of um, in the form of a, of a clot thrombus MI. And then there's a, this is called type one. And then there's a vasospasm supply demand mismatch. Guess what? Out of those now almost 700 MIs that have been adjudicated, half of them are secondary or type two MIs. They're occurring in young people, they're occurring in young people on meth, they're occurring on cocaine, they're occurring with sepsis, they're occurring in all kinds of settings, and they're usually younger people. So that begs the question, what does a statin do for that? What does aspirin do for that? Don't know, probably not as much as it does for type one, right? So when we talk about these types of data that we're using and we're resting, say, man, we know what we're talking about, you know, not so fast, my friend, as Lee Corso would say. There's stuff to think about with that. And it's really fascinating how this has opened my eyes. And, you know, you're talking to a, a full uh, believer in cohorts, but I'm also a full believer as best we can in the truth. And that's our obligation to get to that. So as we look at, at MI data, I just wanted to leave you with that message and uh, just to show you a little bit more data here. Um, no, no altern alternative facts here. Uh, well, although I can try it on you, right? I, I won the election by a very large margin. Um, it's so big I can't even count, but sepsis, bacteremia, cocaine, hypertensive emergency. So these are all the listings here. But it's just really a fascinating story. So I think we're, we have time for questions, um, or is this it? Message. Mike, can I just make one comment about that point? I think despite the, limit, the limitations or some of the challenges with cohort studies, cohort after cohort after cohort has found an association yeah, yeah. with the ear and MI, whether it be type 1 or type 2, whether it be cumulative or recent. It just won't go away. Yeah, that's true, but the randomized studies from the FDA analysis didn't show. That's the one thing that sort of makes you scratch your head a little bit. You've got to be careful, of course, because the FDA only looked at clinical trials, and so many people who were at risk may not. And short follow-up. Yep. Okay, a couple of quick questions, and we'll wrap up. Um, what about metformin and dolutegravir? Drug interaction, uh, don't use more than 1,000 milligrams. 1,000 total? Total a day. Right, so not, not the 1,000 twice a day. No, no, you drop so it 1,000 total a day. Right. Uh, so 500 twice a day. Or, or, or you, 1, you can actually give 1,000 once a day. We've, okay. We split it usually because 1,000 is not as well tolerated initially. Right. Um, what's the feeling about a uh, fixed dose combination of, um, of, with TAF in it for either rolpivirine or for COBE boosted elvitegravir? We didn't talk too much about that. I don't know. There's just some question about does it matter? I think we did address mostly you'd lean towards. Well, it's about would you lean towards TAF over TDF? And I think we've sort of addressed that. But let me flip it. And there was a second part of the question I asked earlier I didn't ask. And that is um, you have somebody on TDF. They're doing okay. It's like the Favrin's question. Do you just, they're say in their 50s, do you proactively switch them over to a TAF? Yeah. Okay. I think the only reason not to are insurance or copay issues that sometimes come up, but they seem to be going away, actually. Yeah. Okay, I didn't get to all the questions in the interest of time. I put I triaged the ones I really wanted to make sure we got to, and we did. But there's a question about um, somebody has a persistently elevated viral load, although not high. So like a churning of about 75 copies, 100 copies. They're doing okay, CD4 counting. Does that bother you? What do you What do you think? It, 
it's likely yeah. that they have a higher set point if it's been going on. The test of time helps you figure out if they're actually experiencing failure and they're going to blast off or if they're just there. It, it's about 10, up to 10% of people will actually do that. And people but, have but tried it, adding um, antiviral agents to their regimen and it doesn't perturb it in many right. cases. The question is, does it bother me though? It really bothers yeah. me. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to... Me too. I think you have to follow it over time because there, there was something at Corey following patients slightly higher than that that eventually most of them did go on to actually viral load to... Don't stop your follow-up. That's right. So I'll turn it back to, to maybe Warner and the phone, phone a friend here. All right. So here's my um, imaginary view of this uh, that is biological. So it's usually in people that have had very high viral loads at the beginning and then they come down but they don't quite go to less than 20 and they stay there. And my sense is, is that the reservoir for them, their latent virus, their pool is probably larger than somebody who had a baseline uh, untreated viral load of 3,000. And that those cells that are harboring latent virus, many of those latent viruses are defective, as you said, but those that are not defective could be stimulated now and then to kick out virus that can be detected in the bloodstream but not be involved necessarily with de novo infection of a neighboring cell. So does that argument hold water for why you might see some fluttering of viral load coming from a distant reservoir in a galaxy far, far away? I don't know. Excellent answer. I can't think of a better way to end the session. Thank you. I think I don't know is the best answer to most of what we have. So I'm told, I just told, so that the organizers People here. People have looked at blips, by the way, and, and yeah. frequently they're clonal, which yeah. suggests that yes. your mechanism is correct. So the reason to ask me back at any point in the future to New York is because we brought, Joe and I, great weather from the south. It's a gorgeous day. Grab a lunch, go outside, commune with nature, and come back in about an hour.